Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the program for January 2nd, the 1st, for 2023. In the Hebrew calendar, we count it as the 9th of Tevet. 5783. I am Walter Bingham and hope that you've had an enjoyable festival of Hanukkah and that your lights will have helped to dispel the darkness of our present time. Also, belatedly, for our Christian friends, may this Christmas have been meaningful as well as joyful and will have inspired you to look for the positive in this difficult time. And to all my listeners, I wish a safe and successful 2023. Today I'm dipping into my archives to bring you three reports showing different sides of Poland. Although they are not exactly new, what they show is still relevant today. As it is my job as journalist to also report on the actions, conduct and policies of our government, which unfortunately are not beyond reproach, this program always tells it as it is, the good, the bad and the ugly. So I begin with another example of how members of our political leadership fail to unite our country. Life on our small planet is changing fast and methods of communication and technology are bringing us closer together. Resulting from the rotation of the Earth and the Gulf Stream across the Atlantic Ocean, the prevailing wind direction in the Northern Hemisphere is predominantly from west to east. That's why aircraft take less time when flying from America to Israel than flying westerly into the wind. As if also helped by the wind, the concept of fast food was blown across the Atlantic, bringing KFC, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts and many more such establishments into our lives. We learned to live with them and even adapted to the lifestyle they virtually imposed on us, to such an extent that their products are being copied and even available under kosher supervision. There are also various noises like punk rock, rap and other styles masquerading as music, the louder the better, to which those of us are exposed who were brought up in traditional styles where songs were melodic and lyrics were clearly discernible. However, all these are still bearable cultural imports from the new world. But the wind does not distinguish between acceptable and unwelcome arrivals. It seems that one of the latest imports from the US that made it across at lightning speed is their critical race theory, adapted into Israeli style by member of Knesset Miri Regev of the Likud party. I said a moment ago that modern technology is bringing us closer together, but it also requires cooperation between peoples. It seems that Miri Regev is oblivious to this fact. Because of her Sephardi origin, she carries a chip on her shoulder and believes that the color of our citizens' skins determines their destiny, that it is white privilege that dominates our government and, by implication, the highest positions in the land. 
It is important to demonstrate that Regev's parentage and darker than white skin had no detrimental or retarding effect on her own career. During her long and distinguished service in the Israel Defense Forces spanning 25 years, Regev rose to the rank of Brigadier General. She served in a variety of professional and command roles, including as Chief Military Censor for the Media and as IDF spokesperson. Miri Regev also served as National Head of IDF Information Dissemination in the Prime Minister's Office in preparation for the Second Gulf War in 2002. In 2009, she was voted a member of Knesset, serving among others as Chair of the Internal Affairs and Environment Committee and in the Foreign Affairs and Defence Committee and in the House Committee. During the Netanyahu government, she held the post of Culture and Sports Minister and Minister of Communication. Between 2017 and 21, Regev was acting Prime Minister on the occasions of Netanyahu's absence abroad. So, her criticism of discrimination based on being Sephardi and of darker skin colour is nothing but a political tool to garner support from the Sephardi right-wing voters to be able to fulfill her ambition to become the Likud leader after Netanyahu. In 2021, she wrote, quote, In the year 2021, there are hardly any Sephardi Jews in senior positions. Something is very wrong here. It's time we had a Sephardi prime minister, and I definitely see myself as leadership material. And just a year ago, she again announced her intentions to run for the position of Israel's Likud party chair when Benjamin Netanyahu exits politics. Well, she will have to wait for quite some time. The best she can hope for now is to be confirmed as Minister of Education in the 2023 government. To stand for leadership position in any primaries is the right of every member of the Likud party, regardless of colour, religion or background. But it is the membership that decides whom they believe to be best suited to lead the party into elections. Regev expressed her frustration that too few of the senior members of her own party are Jews of Sephardi origin whose parents came from Middle Eastern or North African countries. She described to the Yediot Achonot daily her plans for a golden revolution to lead a new type of elite to power that will emerge from Sephardi ranks. Regev believes that changes would soon be felt. Do these sentiments sound familiar in American BLM terms? She continued, quote, I would like to be heading an alliance of leading Sephardi Jews by 2022 or 2023, she said. Well, I think she missed the boat. And then continued, Listen carefully to what I'm saying. If the present Likud continues to opt for people with white DNA, a different type of Likud is liable to appear on the scene, a genuine Sephardi Likud that will give voice to Sephardi views 
views that haven't been expressed by anyone in the past, and this has to change. Miri Regev has certainly taken a leaf out of the mission statement of Black Lives Matter. Yet in May 2012, at the demonstration against illegal immigrants in Tel Aviv, Regev said, quote, that Sudanese infiltrators are a cancer in the nation's body. Such inconsistent assertions reek of the hypocrisy of a power-crazed woman. Let's examine her allegations. The Internet lists 49 names of prominent former and present politicians and high-ranking military officers of Sephardi or Mizrahi background, including President Katsav, Moshe Kachlon, Shaul Mofaz, Dalia Itzik, Gabi Ashkenazi, Gadi Eisenkot, and many others. That does not look like discrimination. Miri Regev's public pronouncements are divisive and designed to create a Sephardi elite to the exclusion of other Jews. Her plans are a danger to the progress of creating a cohesive and inclusive Israeli society. Now to Poland. You'll hear something about what seems at first to be a contradiction. The Jewish Catholics in Poland. But that is very, very sadly true. Rosie Goldsmith presents a program on BBC Radio 4 in the UK called Crossing Continents. She went to Poland and I thought it worthwhile to repeat here a part of her revealing report with permission by the BBC. It's seven in the morning and Father Romuald is holding mass at a convent in the city of Lublin in southeast Poland. He and the nuns here have lived through turbulent times, the aftermath of World War II, communist rule, and since 1989, the shock of democracy and free markets. In today's Crossing Continents, I look at how Poland is emerging from the frozen decades to forge a new identity at the center of Europe. For many Poles, like Father Romuald, this regeneration process has begun by uncovering the secrets and lies of Poland's past. I always wanted to be a priest. I was raised in a Catholic family. They didn't make me go to church, but we would go together. And I always had a strong faith. I was a devout altar boy. When I was young, people asked me who I looked like, my mother or my father. And when I was about five years old, someone called me a dirty Jew, and I was scared. I began to have some doubts about myself and suspected that something might be wrong. It wasn't prejudice. I just wanted to be the son of my parents. At the age of 35, after you'd been a Catholic priest for 12 years, you made an extraordinary discovery, a discovery that changed your life forever. Father, it was your mother, in the end, who broke the news to you. It was like being born again. My mother was living here with me. 
I was talking to her about the Holocaust and I asked her, am I a Jew? She began to cry and said, don't I love you? I had my answer. Then she told me, your parents were wonderful. They were Jews. They were killed. I was only saving you from death. She said that my true mother had pleaded with her saying, you are a Christian woman. You believe that Jesus was a Jew. In the name of that Jew, save this child, and one day he will become a priest. With those words, I suddenly understood everything about my life. It's your Polish mother, your Polish father. Yes. What was your Polish mother's name? Emilia. We're looking at photographs of you when you were a child with your two Polish parents. And you really did not look like them at all. So a Polish family had saved a Jewish baby from the gas chambers at great risk to themselves. And Romwald was brought up Catholic. His adoptive mother could only tell him a little about his origins, that he'd had an older brother, Samuel, and that he, his mother and father, were all murdered in the Holocaust. Under communism in Poland, it wasn't easy or even safe to live as a Jew. So Father Romwald kept this devastating discovery to himself. You have to remember, Poland only became free in 1989. Before then, we could hardly talk about our history. Even in 1990, it was difficult. I saw graffiti which said, send the Jews to the gas chamber. Then I felt really exposed. Since then, there has been a revival of Jewish life in many cities. Jews are now free to uncover their past. They can be proud of being themselves. The worst thing is when a man is frightened of being himself. Father Romuald still struggles to reconcile his two identities. He now calls himself Father Romuald Jakob Wechsler Vashkinel, using both his Jewish and Catholic names, a living symbol of two faiths. But for centuries before the Holocaust, Jews and Catholics had lived together in Poland without major conflict. Jews formed 10% of the population. Then, under the Nazi occupation, three million were murdered on Polish soil. Of course, there are many dramatic stories of Holocaust survival and heroism. But for Poles, many of these stories remain hidden. Today, even six decades later, not everyone can cope with the truth. I'm sitting in a flat in the capital, Warsaw, with a man who chooses to be anonymous. He's obviously nervous. He's a well-known figure in the arts, and he's about 60. He was brought up alongside his cousin, and they were like brothers. He's facing a very personal dilemma. In 1943, my brother, a baby then, was thrown out of a train heading east. It was a train transporting Jews to the death camps. My mother and aunt happened to be at the station and found him. My aunt brought him up as her own son and as a Catholic. He doesn't know this story. During the war, his Jewish origins were a matter of life and death. After the war, I thought it was up to his adoptive parents, my aunt and uncle, to tell him. But they didn't. And now they're dead. If you were to tell him 
tomorrow. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid it would be too late. Some things are irreversible. The problem is, even if my brother wanted to, he wouldn't be able to trace his origins. There's nothing left. I think if you tell someone that their parents are not their parents, and they've no chance of finding the real ones, then you can cause a lot of pain. I didn't want to destroy his love for his parents when they were alive, and now that they are dead, I don't want to ruin his memories of them. The personal pain in each of these tragic stories is palpable. Classic adoption stories, but here in Poland, they're burdened with history. The Association of the Hidden Children of the Holocaust has been set up to help. In a room above the Jewish theater in Warsaw, a group of Polish Jews, born in their 60s, 70s, and even 80s, gather to share their experiences. When the association was founded a decade ago, there were only four members. But now, as more and more Poles realize that they're Jewish, or feel free to admit it, there are 800 members across the country. Witowska, you're the director of this group. Now tell me, what do you think you've achieved in the 10 years since you started? She says they've, as a group, achieved a lot. It's become the group of support for all of them. It's a family. For many of them, it's the only family they've got. Many Polish parents of Jewish kids are passing away. They think they can't take the secrets to the grave. So at the end of their life, they tell to their kids, I'm not your true parent. And there's people who are at the moment 60 years of age. They've got to face a real problem. They are not the people they think they have been through their whole life. And this group helps people like that. She says, yes, certainly. We provide psychotherapy for all of those people because they don't know how to approach the new situation. They don't know who they are. We try to help them to find a new identity. Before the war, one third of Warsaw's population was Jewish. There were three synagogues. So who are the Jews in the new Poland? Tonight, in the one remaining synagogue, I can see all ages. The rediscovered Jews, the newly converted, the undecided, and some curious non-Jews. There are also visitors from Israel and the United States. Leading Poland's Jews today, and leading prayers tonight, in his charming mixture of Hebrew, English, and Polish, is Chief Rabbi Michael Schudrich. After the devastation of Jewish life here, and after the purges and anti-Semitism under communism, Rabbi Shudrik has presided over a remarkable revival of this small Jewish community. It is pretty incredible. In 1993, the synagogue was attended by wonderful old men that never gave up the tradition. Almost all of them have since passed away, and I don't think in 1993 that we could have imagined that the synagogue would be full of young Jews as it was yesterday. What kind of numbers are you talking about? How many Jews are there in Warsaw? There is no clear answer. And this really goes to the heart of the matter. What makes this community unique, it's really a central Eastern European experience. In 1939, there were three and a half million Jews living in Poland, the largest, by far the largest Jewish community in Europe. By the end of 44, beginning of 45, 90% of those Jews are dead. For, for most people, it's too painful 
to even think what happened to the survivors. But there were 10% that remained alive. After the Nazis, during the communists, with the pogrom, with the Persian 48, and in 56, and in 68, Jewish survivors had two reactions. One was, if I want to stay Jewish, leave Poland. And the other one was, if I want to stay in Poland, I leave Judaism. This family secret remains a secret until the new democracy here in Poland. Some older people begin to say, I can now tell my children and grandchildren. Some children and grandchildren that suspected something didn't make sense then began to ask. And so some thousands of Poles in the last few years have discovered that they really have Jewish roots. So you hear of deathbed confessions. That's how people are hearing about their Jewishness. Uh, that, that's one typical way, not the only way. I've, I've had cases heartrending on three different occasions over the last 10 years. Uh, men who knew they were orphans but didn't know who they really were. And in each case, they closed the door, locked it, and insisted on, on pulling down their pants. So I would certify that they were circumcised. It's a kind of a very strange never-never land. We have our Jewish tradition that if your mother was Jewish, then you were Jewish, and that we follow. On the other hand, if 50 members of your father's family were killed by Hitler because they were Jewish, then shouldn't they have a right to learn something about it if they want? And if they want to take that step to become part of the Jewish people, then we also should be there if they go through the proper procedure. Each individual needs to make their individual decision where they want to belong. Our responsibility as a Jewish community is to open the door. Well, that was a very sad tale, and I'm sure you'll want to comment on it. Next is an interview that shows their non-apologetic attitude for anything to do with persecution of Jews. Today I'm at the London Embassy of the Polish Republic where His Excellency the Ambassador Pan Richard Stemplowski has kindly agreed to answer my questions about recent events at the former Nazi extermination camp at Auschwitz and about the general running of this and other former campsites within Poland. A very good afternoon, and thank you very much, sir, for finding the time. Welcome. There is considerable concern in the Jewish community here and in Israel, and communities, uh, in fact, all over the world, about the administering and the supervising of Auschwitz-Birkenau and of other similar uh, camps. Isn't it plainly evident from what's been going on in recent years? Well, I, I, I share the concern, and let me tell you that a lot of our Poles in Poland do share the concern, if only because we are in a very much similar situation. Actually, uh, we are free to act as we wish to uh, since 1989, as you know. And since that time, considerable effort has been made. Poles do understand how sensitive the question may be. But however, due to the brevity of time, uh, I would say that our results um, are only partial. And I do understand that people may be getting impatient. To a degree, it's uh, uh, an understandable uh, attitude. But nevertheless, Ambassador... Your government has been accused of uh, insensitivity in not showing the right reverence and respect 
due to a place that's been estimated uh, variously, but at least one and a half million Jews were put to death there. And eyewitnesses uh, reported, for instance, that in 1991, children had been seen fishing in the very pond at Birkenau where it was said that the ashes of crematorium five were tipped. In the same year, people were seen having picnics at Auschwitz One. Doesn't your government care? Oh, well, I don't agree that this or the other government in Poland would be insensitive to such a sensitive matter. So I don't think people would be insensitive. But true enough, it's not uh, a topic or a matter number one from the government point of view, in all frankness. You know that Poland is undergoing an enormous social change right now, and this is one of many issues the government has to deal with. The fact is that all the, this whole complex of, of, of Auschwitz camps, plural, and adjacent territories, and some other places of, of this disastrous uh, uh, Second World War history uh, are important enough to be taken care of, and we should not be uh, sort of uh, led to concentrate on minutia, minor things. I do agree that um, much more could be done, should be done, and is being done. These issues had been very much um, relegated into an unwelcome position, and uh, people were not encouraged, to say the least, to take up these issues and so on and so on. So it's only now that we can do it. I think certain degree of patience would be very helpful. And again, I do share the concern. But I'm patience, not satisfied. But sir, patience for what? It's well, been now many years, 53 years. No, it's not so. 53 years. No, no, no. Since the no, no, it's eight years since 1989 that the Polish government and Polish society speaks in an open way about our losses, Jewish losses, Ukrainian losses, common relationship. It's for the first time that we can put things into the proper perspective. We are moving in the right direction, but we are very far from the desired end. It, not everything has been done. A lot more has to be done, but we are moving in this direction. Okay, so then let's come a little nearer today into the time during which the Polish government was well and truly established, 1995. There were the 50th anniversary commemorations of Auschwitz, and at that time the authorities made no attempt whatsoever to remove banners, anti-Jewish banners, which were draped all along the railings at the Catholic convent, which in itself, of course, as you know, was a matter of controversy in the 80s. Then I believe there were difficulties in being allowed to recite the Jewish memorial prayer. And I am told that that was at the instigation of the then president, Lech Valenza. You said that was minutia. This isn't minutia for Jews. Well, uh, let me tell you, where you have free speech and freedom of association, you will always inevitably have some extremist groups or individuals or organizations, and they may come up with impossible stories, slogans or banners or whatever. If I put those extremist um, manifestations against a background of what's going on in Poland, well, when I recall 1968 and compare it with the situation right now, 30 years later, let me tell you one thing. 
I am satisfied with what has happened in the recent years. Are you saying, uh, Ambassador, that you are satisfied with what is happening at Auschwitz today? I am telling you, uh, Auschwitz, that, that, another point should be added to this. I, I am talking about we Auschwitz have, here. We have, um, uh, we have uh, uh, the, the following uh, phenomenon, that extremists in every country, in every camp, so to speak, from time to time may succeed in drawing uh, attention of, 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 the, of the world media, national media or whatever. Uh, in this case, uh, people are going there and are putting up crosses, for instance. I don't believe those crosses are going to stay there in such a shape as they are. I, don't, I know that the church is disapproving uh, it. Uh, and again, I would not exaggerate with the significance of it. I don't like it. The government has condemned it. Uh, but I would say that the measures um, applied has to be in certain proportion to what has happened. Can we now move on to very recent times? You said things are getting better, Ambassador. Yes. Well, in August last year, Nazi or neo-Nazi skinheads demonstrated at Auschwitz, as you probably know. A demonstration of this kind have to be sanctioned. I think if Jews were to stand in the centre of Warsaw to uh, wanting to demonstrate, they'd have to get permission. So, obviously, permission was given for that demo. So, things are not getting better. Then there was the uh, proposal of erecting a mini-mall at Auschwitz, some shopping centre. Well, there was uh, considerable pressure from all around the world, and that idea was dropped. But in March this year, permission was given for a visitor centre. There is a post office, there is a bank... There's a fast food shop. I don't think if I were taken around, I would have appetite to go into a fast food shop. Now, is that the right place to put such an establishment? No, and it's not being put up. Permission has not been granted. It is not being built, and, and, and it will not be built. So you're saying categorically that the mini-mall or any similar establishment will not be built at Auschwitz? Nothing will be built which would be contrary to the acceptable norm of international community and, the, and I would say, uh, universally shared values related to such a place of a mass disaster, whoever they were, Jews or Poles, whoever. What would be acceptable? Well, I think uh, there, there is a, a so-called strategic Auschwitz plan um, elaborated by the government. Uh, I think it's uh, developing right now. And uh, I know that the people who are responsible for, for this strategic plan uh, are in touch with uh, the international organizations uh, which are concerned with that. I think we'll be satisfied pretty soon. Well, the fear is, of course, in Jewish circles uh, from the experience. Well, in some Jewish circles, let me tell you, because we are talking to various people. And, well, some people are quite rightly very nervous, and I do share again. I would have reacted probably in the same way. I do understand this position, but there are some other people who understand that the Auschwitz is not an issue number one for a country which is undergoing such a change. This is one of important issues. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not relegating it. I, I'm not uh, saying to you it's not important. No, it is important and pleasant sometimes. Uh, we understand it, but this is not the only question we deal with. It is the question which, of course, concerns uh, Jew Jews all over the not world. Not only Jews, it concerns my Poles as well. 
What makes you think that Poles would like to see things done in a proper way? I'll come to that. I think the utterances of Cardinal Glenn are evident for that. But let me now come to this latest development of crosses. There are 50 wooden crosses have been put up so far. The largest, I'm told, is 26 feet high. And the intention is at the moment to put up 152, it seems, uh, in memory of a group of 152 Poles who were shot. There were 75,000 Catholics, it's estimated, victims at Auschwitz, and one and a half million Jews. By the same ratio of 152, that would make 4,000 Stars of David. But there was, what was there not... Uh, and an agreement that no symbols of religious or political uh, nature should be erected there. And putting up those crosses is in direct contravention of that agreement. Is it an interpretation of the Pope's call to defend the cross, perhaps? Well, the people who do it will obviously uh, refer themselves to, to the Pope, to God, to, 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 to whatever they want to. Gatton doesn't like this idea of putting up those many crosses. And the primate spoke about the, the big cross, but nevertheless he underlined that it was his own view. And we are waiting for the, the meeting of the conference, or the conference of the Polish Episcopate, in two weeks or so, and it's only they who are responsible uh, for the process in this case. So I believe that they will put the house in order. I don't think it's going to ruin the Polish-Jewish relations or the Polish-Israel relations. We know that these are political demonstrations, hardly related to, to, to Jews or God or whatever. We have to control the situation, but at the same time, we would like to be attentive both to the sentiments of the Jews, to the sentiments of the Catholics, and not to restrict the freedom of association and freedom of free speech. I mean, the government would like to to give the chance to the Episcopate to run things in the proper way. And I believe things will be settled down. I condemn this action. I I think it's foolish. I don't think these people were realizing that they were hurting that much, both Poles and Jews, actually. Because I feel feel hurt. We're talking about about Cardinal Glimp. He's known to to have uttered many anti-Semitic utterances, so to speak. Valenza also gave uh, his voice to the erection of the cross. Look, to look this. Even, even if this is true, which I, I, I can't really believe, even there we have 25,000 priests in Poland. You will always find someone whom you will not like, and I may even share your point of view. And, uh, but that's another story. You should not focus exclusively on the negative side because what I'm thinking about is where are we going as a nation? The nation is going in the right direction. Extremists will not be allowed to hijack this progress. He said, for instance, very recently, it's nagging by Jews to get the crosses removed. The Guardian some days ago published an article in which Cardinal Glemp is quoted as saying, this land is Polish and attempts by others to impose their will is seen as impinging on the sovereignty of the country. But I could sign this statement as well, but it has nothing to do with crosses. But that's what was said in the context this is taken, of the no, This is taken from the context. I, I hear the whole statement. The whole statement is slightly different, is more balanced, and uh, Cardinal Glamp here is not referring to this specific crosses brought by this extremist movement there. 
And he's right when he tells the non-one will come to parent and tell us again what to do. We know ourselves how to settle the things. But having said that, I would like to assure you again that doing things properly, properly is to do in such a way as to share universally shared values. Would you allow, Ambassador, children to play, dogs to roam, bicycles, or people have shortcuts across uh, military cemeteries? It should be treated like a military cemetery with a due reverence and respect. Yes, I quite agree. I quite agree. And that hasn't been the case. The whole complex of the camp and adjacent territories are sort of a monument. The very name evokes um, uh, uh, very emotive feelings. We learned about Auschwitz as children. But, we, but let me tell you one thing. We never learned that it was a Jewish camp. That we learned... I, I quite agree with that's you. That's exactly the yeah. point. But, that's, but this is the new Poland which I'm talking about, that nowadays we are restoring the proper dimensions to the whole disaster, and we try to find proper attitudes to that. Okay, that's in, the change. Okay, in that case it should be the Polish government, should it not, uh, administering this. But uh, again, quoting from The Guardian... It says the centre-right government has restated its position that the matter rests with the church. In other words, the whole business of Auschwitz and its administration has been handed over, it seems, no. to the church. <laughs> no, 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 this is not true. Uh, I don't know what the Guardian says, but the Guardian is no authority in this case for the Polish ambassador. However, it's for the church to bring uh, members of the church, as it were, uh, into order. They have to tell the members of the church that they don't behave in the proper way. Even Cardinal Glimp, in his last statement, is not talking about these crosses. He's talking about the papal cross, which is a difference. Because, after all, you can't expect that in a country where you have 30 or so million Catholics, even more probably, people will not be allowed to have a cross where also their, their friends or parents or, or I don't know who perished, but the reasonable people know how to uh, take care of the sensitivities of the others. We know that the bulk of the, of, of the victims are Jewish. I do believe that uh, an agreement should be reached and a compromise reached uh, where which is going to allow both Jews and Catholics and Orthodox or whoever they are to be present there in a mutually, mutually acceptable way. And I don't see why intelligent cooperative people should not reach such an end. Ambassador Stemplowski, thank you very much. The Poles, and I am deliberately generalizing, have once again demonstrated their age-old antisemitism. Before the Holocaust, 10% of the total population of Poland were Jews, more than anywhere else in Europe. Their possessions and property has been appropriated by succeeding Polish governments since the end of World War II. It is true that the bulk of the atrocities in Poland during the Holocaust has been perpetrated by Germans while occupying their country, that the concentration camps on Polish soil were erected by the Nazis, and that the murder of almost 3.3 million Jews who lived in Poland before the war was carried out on the instructions of the Nazis. Only 380,000 survived. All that could not have been accomplished without the cooperation of the Polish authorities. 
Not all Polish Jews were instantly recognized by their appearance and attire. It was the local authority registration that facilitated the arrests, and it was with their cooperation that properties owned and vacated by Jews were allocated to Poles. Following the end of the war, the communist regime completed the crime by confiscating Jewish-owned commercial properties and factories. These are now operated by Poles. Poland is the only post-communist EU country not to have passed a property restitution law. After liberation, when Jews decided to go back to Poland to look for their pre-war homes, they were met with severe outbursts of anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish violence from non-Jewish families who had moved in during the wartime Nazi occupation. It was terrible in its fury and brutality. The most shocking such episode was the Kielce pogrom, a violent attack in July 1946 by Polish residents of Kielce against survivors who had returned. They murdered 42 Jews there. Kielce was the warning sign, so that in the month following, some 60,000 Jews left Poland and Yad Vashem estimates that as many as one or two thousand Jews may have been murdered after the war by Poles. Kielce reflected the stark betrayal of a Jewish community that was trying to re-establish itself at a time when it should have been received with compassion and sympathy from its neighbors. The rationale behind the threats have been linked to both anti-Semitism and general fear of homelessness by the families who illegally occupy Jewish property. The Polish Prime Minister, Maciusz Morawiecki, categorically refuses to pay compensation. He said not a single slotty, dollar or euro, which amounts to theft of Jewish property, not different from the actions of the Nazis. And to add insult to injury, the Polish lower house legislated retroactively a 30-year limit for restitution claims against the state, which has already expired. But all that is nothing new about the Poles. They have always been anti-Semites, otherwise my grandparents wouldn't have had to leave there in the late 1800s. Now to lighten up things a little. Have you ever thought why the sun lightens our hair but darkens our skin? And why women cannot put on mascara with their mouth closed? Just watch your wife, partner or even your mother. We also never see the headline, Psychic wins the lottery. And why abbreviated is such a long word. And with that, I've come to the end for today. Until we meet again, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a good week, a safe week and please also look in on your elderly neighbour to see if they are alright. Goodbye.
Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel. Plus, little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 